This is Come and See from St. Andrew's Anglican Church for March 25th, 2012. The Gospel is taken from the book of John, chapter 12, verses 20 through 33. The message is by Father Ron Baird. This morning's Gospel lesson, we have a, another curious story about Jesus. There were two uh, Greek Jews, um, so probably what that means is that they were uh, pagan converts to Judaism. Uh, oftentimes you hear them uh, called um, God-fearers um, in Acts, they speak to them that way, who had come and they said to Philip, who they knew from Bethsaida, which was a more metropolitan, if you want to call it that. It wasn't very big, but I mean, it was more of a place where Jews and Gentiles might mix. Um, and so they kind of knew where he was from. And they said, sir, we would see Jesus. And then Philip instead of taking them to see Jesus, goes to see Andrew. Now, why do you suppose he did that? You think he just knew that it'd be, Andrew would be our patron saint, and so we'd like it a lot of it. <laughs> it's a curious thing, isn't it, that he, rather, he, he goes to see Andrew. Well, part of it is you have to remember who Andrew is. Andrew is Peter's brother, and Andrew actually was one of the very first disciples who were called by Jesus. And so probably, it, it, as it turns out, Andrew is much more you know, experienced at bringing people to Jesus. But on top of that, Peter is the guy who had, Jesus had said, this is the rock upon which I will build my church. So he's Peter's brother, so he figures, well, you know, he'd be a good person to have go tell Jesus, there are these two guys here who want to see you. And so Andrew, not being completely dumb, says, well, you're going with me. Um, and, and they both go, and they say to Jesus, there are two men who would like to see you. Now, why do you suppose they wanted to see Jesus? Was curious that day, thought we're in town, might as well see the wonder worker or reputation. I mean, what, what do you think? Curiosity? Apparently, they want to have some sort of interaction with them. We don't really know. There aren't any wrong answers because the Scripture never tells us. We have a hint that comes up from Jesus' answer, though. And so when they say this to Jesus, Jesus says, The hour is now come for the Son of Man to be glorified. <laughs> you all got that, didn't you? Makes perfect sense. Jesus does this all the time. People will come to Him with a request or a question, and then He answers them, but in a way that they would never have pictured or could imagine what in the world that has to do with anything. The hour has now come for the Son of Man to be glorified. You can almost see the puzzled look on their face like, Philip's thinking, this is why I wanted Andrew to do this. But, um, <laughs> um, and so, so, you know, what, what do they do? They go back and say, well, we went and saw him and told him we want to see him. He said, now's the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. Well, that's kind of... So Jesus, seeing their dilemma, says to them, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it will not break open. But when it does, it will bear much fruit. And you can just see the relief in Philip and Andrew's face going, oh, that explains it all. <laughs> but what about these two guys who want to see you? He says, anyone who loves their life in this world will lose it. And anyone who hates their life in this world 
will keep it for eternity. Now we're starting to see what he's really getting at. What is it that they want? They want salvation. And Jesus is telling them, you know, well, have you talked with them? Because there's a price. If you want eternal life, then you're going to have to hate your life. You're going to have to give up your own willfulness. Now, that's not the first time we hear Jesus say it. He says it all the time. You know, anyone who'd lose, who uh, would save their life will lose it. And anyone who would um, lose their life for my sake in the gospel will find it. I mean, you know, it's a very common kind of thing, none of which apparently the, the disciples really ever got, which shouldn't be too surprising to us because it seems to me that 2,000 years hence we still don't quite get it because um, we still act in ways that the world would tell us is the best way to get ahead in the world which, by the way, is not the best way to lose your life. And so here um, they are, and they're, they're kind of still pondering what does all this mean. I mean, how, how, you know, save your life and lose it, lose your I mean, I can't go back and tell these guys this stuff. And so then he goes on to explain, you know, what would you ask of me? Did I ask God to take this away from me? Let this hour pass? No, I tell you, the hour is now. And so he says to the Father in heaven, Father, glorify your name. And then something happens that has only happened twice in the Gospels before. A voice from heaven booms out saying, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Now, when were the other two times? You all remember? Baptism and what? Transfiguration. In those two times, the message was, this is my son, the beloved, listen to him. Now the voice is something different. It says, I've already glorified my, you know, your, God's name in, in what he has done, but now I will glorify it again. And it says later, this is to show by what kind of death he was to die. Because what Jesus is talking about is, I'm going to show you what it looks like to lose your life for the sake of the gospel. I am going to die. That's what glory really is. You ever think about that? The way that Jesus is glorified, the way God's name is glorified through Jesus, is by him dying. Not by wonderful deeds of power, you know, not by words of wisdom, but by dying on a cross. Now, most of us probably wouldn't consider that very glorified. <laughs> I mean, it would be like us saying, you're going to be taken and given a lethal injection and executed as a criminal, and, and through that, God's name will be glorified. Anybody want to sign up? Doesn't seem like a very good deal, does it? But that's exactly what Jesus is telling us. And it goes back to what he had said before about unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth, and dies and breaks open, it cannot bear much fruit. So it is with the Son of Man. Unless he is lifted up from the earth and it dies and is broken open, this eternal life, which belongs to God alone, cannot be shared with anyone else. Now, we sometimes gloss over that because we all think, well, we're all children of God. We're born with an immortal soul, you know, those wonderful things, and all of which, by the way, are lies. 
You know, Satan wants you to believe that, but it's not true. Any more than a mosquito is a child of God and born with an immortal soul. We are children of God only if we have been adopted and grafted into the vine. Otherwise, we are creatures of God. We are people who He has created. We become children through adoption. And the way that we can become children through adoption is to die to ourselves and to live for Christ. That's the path. And then God's Word will bear much fruit. So for the first part of Lent, we've talked about some themes. The first two weeks, I asked you to look at um, the sins that you actually uh, commit. And, and take a good look at yourself and examine your life and the things that you do that really are in keeping with the gospel. The second uh, two weeks, I ask you to ask God to reveal to you your secret sins, those things that you don't even know about, you know, those things that you don't stop to think about. Did you all do that or did you not stop to think about it? <laughs> it wouldn't be hard, would it? And, and so the last two weeks is a time to focus on what the real cost of Easter is. Because the real cost of Easter is to share with Christ in his death. And to do that, we have to learn a new thing, which is to become obedient. Now, obedient isn't real popular with my generation, I can tell you. you know, anyone from baby boomers on, obedience isn't a good thing. Because, you know, I mean, after all, we learned, you know, great slogans like question authority. You know, obedience was not in there. You know, and, and, and we saw the, uh, the greatest generation do things that, that we still think are dumb, don't we? It's kind of funny given that they're the greatest generation, but we think they're dumb. But that may say more about us than it does them. Because, I mean, I'll give you an example. My father-in-law goes to the doctor and he, he says, oh, the doctor gave me some more medicine to take. I don't know, what, it, what did he give you? Oh, I don't know what it's called. Well, what's it for? He says, I don't know. I said, well, didn't you ask him? He goes, no, that would be rude. I'm not going to question him. I mean, I'm sitting here thinking, what's that about? But it was a generation that grew up learning that the real virtues weren't to be independent and self-reliant and self-thinking, but to, you know, do your duty to have honor. Interesting, isn't it? They call our generation more the me generation. They call their generation the greatest generation. I wonder who got closer. But we don't trust authorities. We don't trust God. We wouldn't say that because that's sort of impolite, isn't it? Especially in church. I mean, you might say it outside the church, but in church isn't good. But, but we really don't trust God. Because we look around at the world and say, man, this place is messed up. So why should I trust him? Well, you should trust him for one basic reason. He will. That's why. He always wins. Whether it looks like it or not, he wins. Because what we see, as Paul says, is through a mirror dimly, through a glass dimly. It's like if you were up very early this morning, did you all see how foggy it was? It's like living that way 
in eternity. Well, all we can see is what's right in front of us. We can't see the long view. And so to us, what may seem hopeless to God is just part of getting there, just like the crucifixion was. And so we have to learn how to be obedient if we're going to learn how to live an eternal life, if we would choose to learn to hate our life so that we can keep it. To hate your life doesn't mean hate being alive, by the way. What it means is hate your own control over your life. Does anybody here have any issues with control? Y'all give away control easily? Everybody here gives away control easily? How many people are lying? (laughs) We have a hard time with control, don't we? (laughs) That's that woman he gave you, right? (laughs) Um, we, We really struggle with control. We want to know what's going to happen. We want to be in charge and we want to make sure that it's going to work out okay. And to not know that is scary. Now, if you think about it, the underlying part of that scariness is what the prince of this world, the ruler of this world tells you. What he tells you is if you don't know and you're not in control, you could be in big trouble. That's not what God says. God says... Trust me. Trust me. But he doesn't just tell us to trust him. He shows us the way in Christ. First, he tells us that we have to lose our own willfulness, sacrifice our own control, sacrifice our own beliefs in what is good and right and proper, and trust that he will guide us in the ways that we need to go. And then he comes as Jesus you know, of Nazareth and does exactly that. Because sometimes the things he's going to tell us to do are not things that we would normally have thought of or would want to do. I mean, let's face it. If he said to you, I want you to go die, you know, go get crucified somewhere, you probably wouldn't be at your top ten list. I mean, you know, you go, what? Why should I have to? We have trouble just at even telling people about Jesus, much less dying for him. But he says, you have to let go. Because this illusion that you have created about your ability to control your environment is crazy. You live in in an insane environment because you think that you have control. I mean, a, a great example of this is rush hour traffic. Isn't it? Where everybody is going to be in control and I don't care what the thing said. If I'm late for work and I got to get there, I'll get in the emergency lane. I'll drive past everybody to get off up there. You know, I'll pass on, on the left if I need to and, and swerve over to make a right-hand turn if that's what needs to be done because I need to be in control. And when you get, you know, what is it, 4 billion, 5 billion people on the planet in control, you got a problem. I mean, it's just crazy. But that's what we do. We want to control. We want to control our spouses. We want to control our kids. We want to control our job. We want to control our security. We want to control our finances. We want to be in control. How are we doing? Not too well. And what we want to do when it doesn't work out isn't to say maybe the problem is, is I want to be in control. What we want to do is whose fault was it? And it's always somebody else. 
We thought, ours? Well, it must be somebody else. What God says is that that's the way of death. That's the way to lose your life. You may be able to create this little bubble around you where you think that you have that, but if it doesn't get broken in this life, it is going to get broken at the end. I mean, you can't get there from here. The way to do it is to die to yourself, to die to your willfulness, and to let God's will be done through you. Now, that shouldn't be all that odd to us because we say it in the Lord's Prayer, which we say at least every Sunday, don't we? I will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That includes us, by the way. I mean, I know you a lot of times we say that and we think, yeah, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven because those people need to hear that. But it also means us. And we have problems with that because so, how do we know what God's will is? How do we find it? How do we make those steps? And for too long, the church has been an institution that says, well, here's the way you know it. You've got this really brilliant guy who stands up front, and he's got this really nice-looking collar on, and wears these funny dresses, and he is absolutely brilliant. You should do what he tells you to do. Wouldn't that be wonderful? I often have people tell me that everybody in a church does what you want. I always think that's kind of funny. Do you honestly think if everybody in church did what I wanted, that we would be doing this? I mean, it wouldn't look like this, I can guarantee you. And you, quite honestly, you shouldn't listen to me except to the point that I'm pointing you to Christ. That's what you should listen about, is how do I get to Christ? Sir, we would see Jesus. Because you don't need a mediator between you and the Lord. That's why he died, so you wouldn't have to have that. You may need some people to help guide the path so that you know how to get to him, to make the introductions, but the real goal is to be able to hear him and follow him. And ultimately, the way of eternal life is obedience. So for the next two weeks, I want you to focus on